0: Thank you.
1: And welcome to the guys podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And our guest today is Joanna from What's Lightsabers Precious.
2: Yeah, hi, I'm here. I'm Joanna from What's Lightsabers Precious. Thanks for having me.
1: And we're the Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. So today we are covering the first part of A Game of You. Which is the fourth major Sandman story arc. Oh, yeah, because Dream Country doesn't count. Right, yeah, I'm not counting the little, like, collections of standalone issues. Fourth major story arc. Yeah. And (laughs) this includes Sandman 32 through 34.
2: You know, I was doing a little bit of extra research about this story arc because it's one of the ones that stood out clearest in my memory when I was thinking back on it. And I looked on, well, like Wikipedia, because that's the kind of scholar I am, but it was talking about how Gaiman Neil Gaiman has said that it is probably his favorite volume in the series, A Game of You, because it's most people's least favorite volume. (laughs) And he loves it all the more for that. Which I thought was weird because it was one of my favorites when I was reading it back in the day.
1: I like the idea that to him it's like a neglected child. That's
2: exactly what he said. He, like just, he,
1: had... he just feels he has to like love it all the more. Yeah, because, yeah. Because other people are cold. <laughs> cold people. Cold human beings. Cold and heartless. And Well, I'm looking forward to this story. Okay, so we're starting with Sandman number 32, Slaughter on Fifth Avenue. Written by Neil Gaiman. With art by Sean McManus and colors by Daniel Vazo. And the cover is by Dave McKeon. There's sort of a bunch of weird people in chains smoking and looking at the camera? Yeah, and on top of that, a view of New York Bay. Oh, okay, cool. Not
2: entirely sure what it has to Well, I mean, it does take place in New York, I suppose. And somebody probably does smoke
1: at some point. But there's definitely not like smoking people just like chilling looking at this dude they got chained to the wall which is what
2: what you would expect judging by the
1: cover but it's what i would be sorely disappointed It's what i went into it hoping for it starts out much more normal than that now most of the details here are going to come up in the story this is one that you can really just jump right into but just so that you know that we've seen some of this before previously on sandman we met a woman named Barbie who was part of an irritatingly perfect couple with a guy named Ken. We learned that Barbie dreams another chapter in the same ongoing fantasy saga every night in which she and her companions are trying to reach the citadel of the cuckoo, carrying with them a gem called the Porpentine. Due to some magical shenanigans, Ken and Barbie ended up being thrust unwilling into each other's dreams, and they both expressed a combination of disgust and disappointment at what they saw in the other's head. Yeah, what? Have you taken, like, elocution
2: classes? How would you spit all that out?
1: Did you used like, to be an auctioneer?
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> Can't say so. Well, to be fair, like, to Barbie, I was also disgusted with Ken's dreams. <laughs> Not with hers so much.
2: Hers were, I mean, hers were childlike, right? They were sweet, and Ken's were...
1: It was like aggressive sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sex and, and money. That's basically what he talks about. A- sex and money.
2: Now, remind me, something happened between them
1: in the earlier story arc, Right. I mean, my memory is that we basically just left them at, oh, you, after they well, come out of each other's dreams. So, we didn't get a ton of detail, but the narration tells us that Ken says things he will later regret. Right, yeah. So, they have a big fight, we can infer, and the way I read it, and this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but the way that I read it was that that was actually when they broke up was probably from that fight. Right, and we will learn more about Caused. how their relationship fell apart as we get into A Game of You. Okay. So we start on page one, and it's a snowy landscape, and we're told that it's the land. So that didn't mean anything to me yet. And we got some different colored text boxes talking to each other. Yeah, this is a conversation between Pranato and Luz and Luz is saying that they're all doomed, and the cuckoo will reign in bleak dominion over all. Well, there you go. And there's also a dead body laying here on the snowy landscape, clutching a scroll.
2: Who is... they said they felt him die.
1: Yeah, Luz felt him die, and this is the Tantoblin who was supposed to bring help. She says the Black Guard got him, and as she says that, we zoom in on Tantoblin's gutted corpse with his scroll in hand. This is a really cool pair of pages as we're zooming slowly in on this massive snow-covered landscape, first past the corpse of Tantoblin and then up to this little tiny cave in the mountain. Okay, so that is a cave. All right, good to know. It's not until we get to page three that I really got my bearings with this, because on page three, Martin Tenbones is mentioned for the first time, and that's the only name that I recognized <laughs> from when we've been in Barbie's dreams before. Right. I do want to mention before we move on that there's a red voice that chimes in. Uh, I think, yeah, Luz is green, Pranato is yellow, Red is Wilkinson. We will learn that Red is Wilkinson, yeah, and Wilkinson is the cynic of the group. Well, I take issue with that, but we'll come back to it later. Okay. (laughs) Wilkinson is complaining about being hungry. Actually, I'm hungry and I'm cold and I'm miserable and we're all going to die.
2: For the love of Murphy, Wilkinson, will you stop saying that?
1: Lou said it first. I was just agreeing with her, and I am hungry. So as we keep zooming into the cave mouth and the panel fills up with blackness, then we see eyes in the dark, and these are the eyes of Martin Tenbones, who has not yet spoken. I say that she has not abandoned us, and I have the porpentine. The hierogram remains unbroken. The land is far from lost. If she, which is spelled with a capital S, can't make her way back to them, he says, one of them must go find her, and the porpentine has the power to do so. I must find her, in whatever distant world she waits, else the land be lost, the cold and the dark, and the cuckoo prevail over all. Oh. God willing. Sorry, am I not supposed to be rooting for the cuckoo in this story? No,
2: you know, it sounds a lot cuter than it actually ends up being.
1: <laughs> I don't actually know, because I'm not to that part yet. <laughs> so with that, we smash cut to New York, where Barbie is awakened by her doorbell. Our first sight of Barbie in this story arc is bleary-eyed and half-dressed, sort of a far cry from the effortless perfection that was Rose's impression of her back in the doll's house. I don't know if that's because things have changed for Barbie, or just this is what it's like from her perspective. I really like her sleepy face here on the the bottom left panel. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just kind of funny looking. with the
2: the left eye sort of half cocked open and the other one completely closed. You got the lines under her eyes. And... Right
1: exactly. Yeah. It's very like it's like me IRL. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Barbie lets in the collar. This is Wanda.
2: I actually have a question about Wanda. I always read Wanda, Wanda as becomes clear was assigned male at birth, we can say. Yeah. At the very least. I always took Wanda as a transgender woman. I read, like, multiple reviews online where they call Wanda a drag queen.
1: No, I don't think so. I
2: don't think so either, right? Wanda,
1: Wanda definitely goes so far as to say, like, Wanda's my real name. Yeah. So, no, Wanda's a trans woman, not a drag queen. And we had a drag queen earlier. Like... Right! In...
2: So Neil Gaiman knows the difference, right? right. exactly. So it's not exactly. like, yeah. Okay. And I think
1: that they know a drag queen, right? Like, I assume that Scarlet is a drag queen. You assume that Scarlet is a drag queen? I didn't notice any indication of that. Well, I guess I guessed that because Scarlet sounds like a stage name to me, and I thought they said that Scarlet knew Hal. Hal. Right. Hal was the landlord in Florida and was a drag queen. Right. So that's why I assumed that Scarlet was a drag queen. But perhaps not. But no, Wanda is definitely a trans woman. Yeah, and I was looking later on to see if we're supposed to understand that she's wearing a wig. I think this is her natural hair. It just looks really different later on. Right, right. Well, yeah, she's drawn very differently between the between the Sean McManus and art the and the later art by Colleen Doran. Yeah, and and that's something that we're going to have to talk about because...
2: I noticed it too. I made a note. Like,
1: yeah, I'm really getting ahead of ourselves here, but the Colleen Doran art is kind of fucked up when it comes to Wanda. (laughs) Okay. So Wanda is here to wake up Barbie and drag her out shopping. Well, so she jokes that she's obviously wrenched her out of a delightful dream, and Barbie says that she doesn't dream. Right. Barbie does not dream at all anymore. So I was like fucking whoa those guys were right she did abandon them yeah wanda wants to go shopping barbie's broke so is wanda but they're not gonna let that stop them barbie agrees to go out but she says she has to do her makeup first we'll come back to that in a minute there's a funny exchange about coffee here do you want to read yeah hell
2: yeah it? all right i'll be i'll be bon- uh, barbie let's go bonda, <laughs> bonda.
1: <laughs> bon- i'll be bonda, bonda.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: when the two of them do like a fusion <dance>. I feel like this episode is so much more anime. Well, that's we what that's the effect are. of me
2: being here. So sorry, guys. All right. You want to make some coffee?
1: Make coffee? You want me to make you coffee?
2: Yeah. Is that beneath you or something?
1: No, it's just my coffee always tastes kind of like something that's been dead for a while. <laughs> I make a great chocolate souffle, though. Would you like a chocolate souffle?
2: Mm, coffee.
1: Okay, you don't know what you're missing. Okay, so Wanda has to go ask the neighbors for cream, which introduces us to all of them. Yeah, and this is this really kind of mirrors to me the way that we get to know all the people in the boarding house where Rose is staying in a doll's house. Or is it just doll's house? I
2: think it's a doll's house. I'm pretty sure. a doll's
1: house or the doll's
2: house? <laughs> oh my god, you guys. <laughs> you just saying? you've just
1: destroyed any credibility it's, we it's have. It's not a room. It's the room. <laughs> so we are introduced to Thessaly, a bookish, young-looking woman with huge glasses. Yeah, she looks pretty harmless, as rendered by Sean McManus. I take note of the fact that you call her out as harmless. Yeah.
2: I don't know, that forehead is something to be reckoned with, though.
1: (laughs) She only has soy milk, so next Wanda goes to a lesbian couple, Hazel and Foxglove. Hazel is short, squarish, and rude. Foxglove is blonde and kind of punk. Yeah, and Hazel is wearing a dope-ass tie, purple shirt combo. Yeah, she's actually making it look good. Yeah. Yeah. So they have the milk, but to carry the milk, they have to give Wanda a cute frog mug, to which she objects vehemently.
2: Is cute frog supposed to be, like, this common brand kind of, like,
1: peace frogs used Uh, to be? Is that what we're evoking here? I just thought it was a thing where, like, anybody who can see it can tell instantly that it is a cute frog mug. Everybody uses the same words to describe it. Oh, so
2: it's a cute, okay, so adjective cute frog, so it's not one, like, trademark, like, cute frog.
1: Oh, right. I don't I don't think mm, so.
2: Or not confident. like Crazy Frog. or Okay. I just wanted to get that straight.
1: <laughs> or like MailChimp.
2: MailChimp?
1: <laughs> now, somebody asks Foxglove, how many are you up to now? And she says 80 and still counting. Does anybody have any idea what that was about? My best guess is cigarettes That's per day. That's
2: what I figured, but 80 cigarettes per day, my God.
1: She's not here for a long time. Just She's a good time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the cute frog mug is... It's very Neil Gaiman that it's so much itself that everybody calls it the same thing. Like, chap with the lime. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: What? Anansi Boys has the chap with the lime. Oh, okay. I have not read that.
2: Oh, it's a good one. You should definitely... It's one of my... it's, It's one of my faves. I like it.
1: They just did it as a radio play with, I think, Lenny Henry as Anansi. I love Lenny Henry. That reminds me. I stand to inherit... Somebody's box set of the first season of the American Gods TV show. Okay. Which I'm really looking forward to watching. Inherit? Well, a friend of mine is just clearing out his apartment. Oh, okay. Inherit things.
2: suggests somebody die. Yeah. <laughs> so. I stand to inherit. <laughs> <laughs> My friend is planning on dying soon.
1: So. <laughs> it's all over for me, and this is how much I like you. American <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Well, he's giving me True Detective as well. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, the first so season? Yeah, so he doesn't like you very much at all, then.
0: No! Uh, Fuck you, man.
1: (laughs) Oh, so on her way back to Barbie, Wanda encounters one more resident. This is George, squashed looking and surly. Yeah, and I kind of, even though he has blonde hair, I kind of took him to be sort of an old man. Uh, Especially, like, if you look at him in that first panel where you can see him. Yeah, I think he's a grouchy old man. I think that's fair. And Wanda says as she passes him, Oh, don't worry. It's not my cute frog mug. I'm carrying it for a friend. <laughs> I think the sweater vest is not doing him any favors either. In terms of looking like an old man.
2: Yeah, definitely not. And the length of the hair in the back is... Yeah. A he's, disaster.
1: He's, <laughs> he's getting into Molotus territory
2: here. And in, in his case, the front part is not just short. It's bald. It's like party in the back and I don't know aging accountant in the front
1: <laughs> party in the back and dead in the front <laughs> it's wanda... only gonna go downhill from here if you're expecting sartorial greatness from John. <laughs> I'm just gonna I mean. say. yeah fair enough so wanda serves barbie her coffee and now we see what barbie meant by doing her makeup she has drawn a chessboard on one side of her face barbie's all anti-establishment now
2: I wrote down, Barbie's makeup is righteous. (laughs) That's my note. If I ever get divorced, I'm doing my face up like that every single day.
1: (laughs) So they've decided to go window shopping at Tiffany's, just like in the movie. We're broke, right? So it doesn't matter where we go. We can't afford it. Now, when you say the movie, you mean breakfast at Tiffany's? Yeah. Okay. I think I remember that film. (sighs) Fuck you. (laughs) God damn it, Eric.
2: You just had to go there. (laughs) I'm walking out. We got halfway through the first issue. and
1: I'm gone. My guest today has been Joanna. (laughs) (laughs) We'll now proceed without you. (laughs) Okay, so, so yeah, Wanda is hustling Barbie out the door. She says, Princess Barbara, shake your little buns. So that brings us to page 11, where Matthew says what we're all thinking. So what are we waiting for exactly? I mean, if that's not a dumb question. No, it is not a foolish question. However, I am not sure that I know the answer. Yeah, they are waiting for something, but even Morpheus doesn't know what. But he knows it's happening here. And then we get a a flash of, like, black and white, which I took to be a lightning strike. That's a good read. It looks like inverted color for a second. I'm not sure if we're supposed to read it as something that Matthew could perceive, or just something really weird. What the hell was that? That was a beginning, Matthew. Something traveled from one state of existence to another. We can infer that that's Martin Tenbones, right? Makes sense. It came from one of the more distant scaries of Dream. Let us observe the consequences. So I had to look that up. And I looked it, up scary as well. <laughs> it turns out that scaries are reefs or rocky islands. Hmm. Okay, makes sense. Dream does a bit of divining here by tossing some of his sand into a river. Right, and then it seems like it creates all this smoke. Yeah, with kind of scary skull faces in the smoke. Oh, I didn't notice the scary skull faces. What he learns from this is that the scary is dying. Matthew asks, So what are you going to do about it, boss? Do about it? The scaries are distant islets in the shoals of dream. They live, they die, they come and go. Now, I looked up shoals, and those are apparently submerged ridges.
2: Okay. All right. Okay. He's getting a lot of maritime vocab in here. I can I'm...
1: appreciate that. Neil Gaiman is subtly educating the reader. <laughs> well, so he's, he's making good use of, of the naval vocab to explain what he's talking about, because there are the Scaries, which are still above water, and the Shoals, which are not. Scaries come and go.
2: Yeah, definitely makes sense. It's artful use of vocabulary. How old was he when he was writing these comics? Do you know?
1: It's, like, he was, like, appallingly young, I think. <laughs> I'd like, be, like... To, <laughs> to be producing, like, any writer would be jealous of him because he wrote this stuff when he was, like, 22 or something.
2: I'm extremely offended that he knew what a scary was when he was 22 <laughs> right. and I just learned it 30.
1: Yeah. Why should I do anything about it? That's Morpheus for you, man. He just wants to make extra sure you know that he does not give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he, he carries someone around with him to tell that person, that crow, that he doesn't care. I have brought you here, Matthew. To show you that I do not give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) We catch up with Barbie and Wanda on the subway. There is an old black homeless woman who is begging them for change. Wanda is rude, but Barbie gives her a little. Yeah, and then she sees a dog, and she does not care for that. I don't like dogs.
2: Hey, don't worry about Rowley. He won't hurt you. He's just a little puppy, aren't you, Rowley?
1: I don't like dogs. I'm scared of them. I don't like them. Listen, he's a puppy. He's on a leash. So lay off, will ya? I'm scared of dogs. I don't like dogs. I just don't like dogs, she says as she bolts out the opening subway door. Another of the wonderful sights of our fair city.
2: Don't. Poor thing.
1: you got to develop a thicker hide if you're going to be a real New Yorker, Barbie Babula. I think it's Bubula. Like what an old Jewish grandma says. <laughs> Barbie Bubula. <laughs> Do you think we got that clean? Should I say Barbie Bubula again? Yeah. I just I want to hear you ask. Please say Barbie Bubula again. <laughs> Barbie Bubula. <laughs> this is a city of crazies. The art lies in not letting them get to you. Still not liking dogs. The homeless woman races off the train and up the stairs where she runs smack into Martin Tenbones, a big bear cat creature with a drooping mustache. Big dog. I wrote
2: down dog looks like the Danny DeVito Lorax. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh my
1: god! That's so <laughs> That's great! I think I think that my notes on this little section are also quite edifying. They say spare change equals good, dogs equals bad, Martin Tenbones in NYC. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This is what
2: I mean by it's so rewarding to reread those, though. Because ten years ago, when I was reading this, there wasn't a Danny DeVito Lorax. Can you imagine a time before the Danny DeVito Lorax? They
1: had yet to design the Danny DeVito Lorax based on this page. (laughs) What an empty waste of existence we lived. (laughs) Also, I want to mention, this guy standing behind Martin Tenbones, is that Clark Kent? It kind of looks like him, yeah. Well, except he's scared. That's a good point. Clark Kent wouldn't be scared. Maybe he's pretending to be scared. So now off the subway, Wanda suggests breakfast at Tiffany's, but her coffee sucks, so Barbie wants a real cup first. At a cafe, they start talking about Barbie's dreams. She remembers the ones she used to have, she just doesn't have them anymore. Yeah, and she specifies that they went away when she split with her ex-husband, Ken. Wanda starts talking about her dreams. She dreamed once she was making out with Weirdzo Lila Lake. The Weirdzos do everything the opposite of Earth folks. she explains. Now this is super weird, right? Because Weirdzo Lila Lake is obviously Bizarro Lois Lane. Yeah, this seems to be a reference to the Bizarro world and the Bizarro Superman from Superman. Now, I know that Hyperman, who is the Superman equivalent in the story that Wanda tells, Hyperman has actually appeared in Superman comics. But the Weirdzos might be new as of this issue. So, Gaiman is using a thinly veiled version of DC characters that many people will recognize here. In spite of the fact that this story technically takes place in the DC universe. But the story that Wanda is telling does not, because she read it in comic books. Right, and I guess it would really slow down this conversation if they had to talk about this stuff as if these were real people. Right. It's at this point that Barbie says that it's been approximately two years since she's had any dreams, uh, which we can take to mean that it's been two years since she's been back to the land. And that's about real time since the doll's house as well. Makes sense. Barbie, at this moment, starts feeling weird and sick, and she recalls Martin Tenbones, and how she and Ken were driven apart by this one weird night, after which she wouldn't talk to him or have sex with him. Yeah, my notes say one weird night equals Sandman number 15, but I think it was actually Sandman number 16. Okay.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely caught that that was a reference to a doll's house, and presumably she was just so disgusted by what she saw in Ken's dream that... She couldn't, couldn't bring herself to lay hands on him anymore.
1: Right. Would you like, who wouldn't be?
2: <laughs> I would be, personally. I mean, I only like vaguely remember that issue, but he was a, nasty little,
0: <laughs> a nasty little punk.
1: Yeah, I think we're all in agreement. So, also, Wanda here mentions that she's trans and tells Barbie not to tell anybody.
2: Right. Specifically, she says, I wanted to be a weirdzo when I grew up. Weirdzo Alvin.
1: Alvin? That's your real name?
2: Wanda's my real name, Barbie Baby. Alvin's just the name I was born with. You ever tell anyone, Barb's You're dead meat. So that's pretty unambiguous, right? That right. you know, Wanda is supposed to be transgender and not a drag queen. So, dudeontour.com and random dude on Goodreads, get it straight, please. Because <laughs> I was pissed.
1: You <laughs> know who you are. Well, so this this book has been out for a long time. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, so yeah. it's entirely possible that, not that this entirely excuses it, but it's possible that these reviews were written like before trans issues were really Ah, but post. I
0: checked. Oh, okay. The Tor.com <laughs> review was from
2: 2013, and the one on Goodreads was from 2017. Oh, holy shit, guys. No <laughs>
1: excuse. None whatsoever. Get your heart right. I think it's interesting, the conversation on this page, that after a certain point, Barbie and Wanda start talking past one another. You know, Wanda's still going on about the weirdos, and Barbie's still talking about Ken, and neither of them is really paying attention to what the other is saying. Oh, yeah, I can kind of see that. I mean,
2: this whole outing, Barbie hasn't been a terrific conversationalist. (laughs) I don't know if that's par for the course for them, or if she's just really out of it for other reasons on this particular day.
1: I think she seems to be out of sorts, and one wonders if that's because of what's going on in the land, even though she says she's abandoned it? Yeah, there's still a bit of a connection there, maybe. She certainly did start to... Think of Ten Bones at an appropriate moment. Meanwhile, we have Martin Tenbones injured searching for Barbara, and people are starting to take notice of the giant dog thing. Oh, he looks so pitiful. It's so sad.
2: This part is heartbreaking. Like, I remember that there were some sad things in this arc, but as soon as I got to this page, I was like, do I really want to do this to myself
1: again? This is a bright place filled with frightened people and fast hard things that hurt and wound. No matter... I swore I would remain by her side forever, and until death divides us. I must walk until once more we are reunited. This place is frightening, but I am not afraid. People shout. High stone cliffs tower upon each side of me. I am brave. I am not afraid. That the land may not die, I must walk this distant land and be not afraid. O Princess Barbara, protect me now as I have protected you in days long past. Oh, Murphy, watch over me. I will not be afraid. He's such a good dude. Words in the art killing it on this page. Definitely. But does Barbie protect him? Unfortunately, no. As we get back to Barbie, she's telling Wanda that she wasn't allowed to read comics when she was a kid. Her dad apparently kept her from all unladylike things. She wonders if he would recognize her now. She says sometimes even she doesn't. Wanda responds by talking about how her parents behave as if she's dead. They even have her room exactly the way she left it with old toys laid out and everything. I found this really interesting. The kind of counterpoint between, like, Barbie, who was raised to be very Mm ladylike, you know, and Wanda, who was obviously raised to be a man. Um, Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And how they both sort of, you know, charted their own course and got away from their intended destinies. Yeah, I think it's interesting too that Barbie talks about will people recognize her when she's basically wearing a mask of makeup that she's put on herself. It's like there's something, there's some version of herself that she's deliberately trying to get away from. Yeah, and she was much more, like, self-consciously feminine the last time we saw her, I think. Yeah, and that was when she... That was before she was separated from Princess Barbie. Strolling along, they run into a roadblock. There's a cop telling everyone to go another way. Yeah, and he says there's nothing to see, which
2: is a bull no. lie! There's a lot to see there, <laughs> sir. I would argue.
1: Fucking dream creature. <laughs> and indeed, Barbie stands on tippy toe and looks over the heads of the other onlookers and recognizes Martin Tenbones? Yeah, they seem to sense each other. Martin turns his head. Princess? My princess? Fire! And oh. at this point, it's just so sad. The police open fire. Martin ten bones goes down in a hail of gunfire. And he comes to rest right in front of Barbie. Yeah, everybody is booking it from the scene, except Barbie is standing stock still, stunned. It's gory. That's all I wrote. It's gory. <laughs> Now, at this point, Martin Tenbones is trying to have his dying words with Barbie, uh, but the police are trying to haul her away. Hey, lady, back off! That thing may still be dangerous!
2: No. Martin Tenbones?
1: My princess, I came for you.
2: But you're from my dream.
1: Princess, the land, the land needs you. Please come back to us. Fulfill your quest. Around my neck. The porpentine. Take it. Please, princess, take it. The cuckoo. It will destroy us all.
2: The porpentine? But.
1: I love you, princess, and I am sorry. I said I would not leave your side, not while I lived. Not. ever. I. Out of the way, Bimbo. What the hell was it? I don't know, some kind of wolf, maybe? Who cares? Look at those teeth. Barbie, are you okay? What's that you've got? What happened? Barbie? Barbie, you're crying. Yeah, it's dead. And as Barbie cries, the tears wash away the checkerboard mask from her face. There's a lovely subtextual layer here as she uh, encounters a thing from her childhood dreams and the real world fucks her childhood dreams (laughs) right up. And then, you know, the stuff that's still inside her from her childhood messes her up, destroys the mask of adulthood that she has put on.
2: I looked this up. So this arc is apparently based on a 1987 novel or inspired by called Bones of the Moon. And like this story arc, it's about a young woman whose sort of childhood whimsy like these creatures she came up with as a child collides with her adult wife to um, horrific effect. Mm. Although I guess in that book, there's a huge like abortion subtext. Oh, yeah, which... Okay. Right. We don't get very heavily in this arc, so I guess that's, you know...
1: Neil Gaiman was like, This is Cool idea. We're... I'm going to take out the politics. Yeah. <laughs> a
2: little bit less abortion.
1: <laughs> Back in the land. Lose, feels, Martin, Tenbones die. And this is our first look, in this arc anyway, at the other three companions. Yeah, I wrote down... Wilkinson has got my favorite design here. He is a rat wearing a trench coat and a hat with a little press ticket in it. Luz is a parrot with... God, what is that? Like a... It's one of those things that you would wear under a shirt? A stuffed shirt? Yeah, like a bow tie and bib. Yeah. And
2: then, finally, we have Pranato, But Pranato is basically an organ grinder's monkey.
1: Wilkinson says that if Ten Bones is dead, they're all gonna wish they were dead too.
2: And, uh, as earlier, he's shut down pretty quickly. Nobody wants to hear his naysaying.
1: Wilkinson Yes, Lose, for Murphy's sake, be quiet, please. Back in New York, Wanda ushers a devastated Barbie back home. Yeah, George is sort of hanging around watching them as Wanda gets Barbie back inside her apartment. Yeah, Barbie wants to be alone, so Wanda heads back to her own place, but she runs into George in the hall. George says, Uh, uh, the lady in, uh, apartment one. She's, uh, not very well.
2: But- Out, George. It's none of your business. She's just had a hard day.
1: On the next page, Barbie, alone in her apartment, opens her hand and is clutching the porpentine. And this is the first time I was sure that she actually managed to get it, before the cops pulled her away from Martin Tenbones.
2: Yeah, they don't really show him handing it off.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, it's all coming back to her, her memories of the land. Then suddenly, the room is full of black crows. Then they're white, and then they're gone. And then we're left with...
2: Barbie making an extremely traumatized face. Please, no. It isn't real. It was only a dream. What's happening to me?
1: Upstairs, meanwhile, George... (laughs) Jesus Christ, this part. (laughs) George catches one of the birds. He takes it into his room, and he stuffs it into his mouth all at once and eats it.
2: And I wrote, guy eats bird, and then in all caps, what the
1: fuck? (laughs) George looks up at a Barbie-branded poster, and he says, with an unearthly grin, You don't know us, Princess Barbara, but the children of the cuckoo know you. Oh yes, we know all about you. Fuck! Yeah, man! (laughs) Creepier than you even thought. That shit is crazy. I also want to point out one other crazy thing, somewhat less crazy. But this comic book has 25 pages. Okay. That almost never happens. Modern comic books are usually 22 pages. Sandman issues around this era tend to be 24 pages. This one's 25. So this is actually a little longer than a regular issue at this point. Yes. Because it's part of my note-taking process, I notice how many pages every issue has. And I think this is the first time we've gotten a 25-pager. I mean, obviously, like the... The Song of Orpheus was forty pages. Yeah. You know, they do vary somewhat in length. If one of them is special, it's but unusual to, have... to vary by one page. But to have only one extra page is pretty weird. So it's a little longer than average. It's also noticeably denser. This is like especially hyperverbal, even for Sandman. Yeah, that's true. We're approaching Hellblazer levels here.
2: <laughs> this is completely unrelated. But do you think that Neil Gaiman got in any legal trouble for like evoking the Barbie font? on the poster. Uh He even wrote Barbie in like the Mattel Barbie font.
1: Yeah, and I wondered like to what extent Barbie exists as a, you know, doll franchise in the DC universe.
2: Right! That's what I was wondering. Is she supposed to be like, I don't know, like just Barbie's just a real person in this world and the doll is not extant? Or is it like, I don't know, she...
1: See, I thought Rose's reaction to Ken and Barbie clearly indicated that Ken and Barbie were a thing. That's true! Yeah. That is true. But we will also learn in a couple of issues that this poster is not the character Barbie. It's a picture of Barbie.
2: With that font. That damn font.
1: Mm-hmm. Which means, did George get in trouble for using that? Yeah, font? right!
0: <laughs> when he Maybe went he to Kinko's
1: it's... to have his makeup. I yeah. just imagine, like, the people at Mattel getting really pissed off. Like, Listen. Dolls are for girls, comic books are for boys, you stay on your side of the fence and we won't have any
2: problems. Never the twain show meet. <laughs> Plus, if you were going to do a, like a merchandising tie-in for Barbie, this would probably not be the venue you chose. This is choose. not what you want
1: to see on <laughs> the market We're, we're going to pick up a lot of new fans. <laughs> this is a Sandman <laughs> issue.
2: Uh, our toy superstar just watched like a, a magical dog thing get like shot to pieces in front of her. That's synergy.
1: (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, the irony is they would only be able to legally defend the trademark if they had intentions of competing in the same arena. Right. I bet there are Barbie comics, though.
2: There are. There are. I've seen them. Yeah, a little girl I used to babysit for had them. God, they're bad. I mean, like they, they have like no rising action, no climax whatsoever. Okay, Barbie went shopping for shoes and she couldn't find the right color. Whoa.
1: You say that they're bad. I think Peter David used to write for that book. Did he?
0: <laughs> no, I'm.
1: Oh my God, I'm okay. kidding. I like, super, super bad at catching. Some I wouldn't hazard. be surprised that man has made money in every franchise. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And so we come to Sandman number thirty-three, Lullabies of Broadway. Same credits. On the cover, the top half is blue with the Game of You title, and the bottom half, in red, a man is pulling open his chest to let crows fly out. I wrote, Man with Birds Shows Skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's showing his skeleton to those birds. That would be like the title of it in like a museum, you know, where right. they didn't know they...
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, right. They don't have the context. Unknown artist, Man with Birds Shows Skeleton. Man with Birds Shows Skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she's singing to that man. <laughs> Okay, so Barbie still has the porpentine in hand, but she looks like she's cleaned up a bit. At least she washed all that smudge makeup off her face. Her hair looks very post-shower to me. I think it's a good detail. Yeah, that is nice. And she's wearing a robe, and her door buzzer buzzes. It is Hazel here to talk. Barbie invites her in. We learn that it's really late. Seems like it's the same night, but Barbie wasn't even trying to sleep. So Hazel explains that she figures there's stuff that barbie will know that no one else will know because she says wanda doesn't know from shit and thessaly is so vanilla
2: that's hilarious in light of what comes later absolutely hilarious i
1: just wrote Thessaly's
2: so vanilla lol nope
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh scarlet's out of town but scarlet that means scarlet is somebody who would know if she were in town which I guess means she's not a drag queen after all. Good, or she's just a drag queen that's really up on
2: women's health issues. Just <laughs> 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 is also a possibility.
1: Gynecologist. Gynecologist. In her day maybe. Job. <laughs> that explains everything.
2: Yeah. But Hazel has some very pressing news. Some
1: very surprising news.
2: Some very yeah, considering what we know. Hazel asked Barbie, "What do you do if you think you're pregnant?"
1: And there's. About two panels of Barbie reacting here. She starts to get the story from Hazel. About six weeks ago, Hazel got a lift home from a waiter at her work. It was late, Foxglove wasn't around, so she let him stay the night, and they ended up having sex. Now, I thought this was kind of.
2: I don't know if this is just the kind of relationship that Barbie and Hazel have, or it's just that this was the late 80s, early 90s, and nobody had cottoned on that this was not a nice word to use if you're not a lesbian. But Barbie says, but Hazel, you're a dyke, which is not a word I ever say aloud.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like some lesbians do use it in like a reclamatory kind of
2: way. Right. Right. And in that
1: context, I don't know if that's the context in which she's speaking, though.
2: It's hard to say because Barbie is not, as far as she's mentioned, a lesbian. No, in fact,
1: the pretext of this conversation is that she's a heterosexual Right, right. No, but if, I think if Hazel identifies that way, like, if Hazel identifies that way and uses the word in a reclamatory way, then it might be appropriate for that to be the word that Barbie uses as well.
2: Well, maybe Barbie
1: asked. Right. I think that's just the baseline
2: rule, right? Like, ask.
1: Yeah, exactly. If they, if they cleared this up ahead of time. Anyway, Hazel thinks that she couldn't get pregnant because they did it standing up. (laughs) Right. Not because they used protection, but because they did it standing up. And this isn't played for comedy at all. Hazel is really naive about straight sex and it's totally heartbreaking.
2: I wrote, fucking abstinence only education.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Jeez Louise, did she douche
2: with coke afterward? Like, that is just a sad state of affairs.
1: (laughs) Poor Hazel. Poor poor thing. Yeah, seriously. Barbie kind of intimates here that this is what you expect when a guy asks to stay over. I haven't slept with one for two years. But yeah, I still like men. But I still wouldn't let one stay the night unless I was planning to sleep with him.
2: All right, Hazel says, It was all over really fast. I mean, it was kind of dumb, but he seems so sad and sort of lonely and anyway, He's gay, mostly.
1: I thought that was pretty ironic. Mm-hmm. And then they also have to clear up whether or not she's going to have to kill a rabbit. Right. Oh, she's so naive. Right. Barbie smiles a little bit as she tells Hazel there are more modern options for pregnancy tests.
2: And then Hazel asks Barbie, have you ever been pregnant? And Barbie says, "Mm, once. And then Hazel says, what happened? Barbie says, I had an abortion. I was still in high school. So I guess that bit from Bones of the Moon, the abortion thing, made it in there, like in a very incidental way. Oh, yeah. Very, very
1: incidental. Okay. By the way, I meant to ask, but I don't think I did. Who wrote that, Bones of the Moon?
2: His name was Jonathan Carroll. Never heard of him, and I've never heard of the book, but it was fairly contemporaneous with when Neil Gaiman was writing this arc.
1: That sounds kind of familiar, that Jonathan Carroll. I'll look it up for the show notes. Hazel asks, does it hurt? Referring to the abortion.
2: And Barbie says, not really. You get an anesthetic.
1: Anyway, she gives her some very practical advice. Get a home pregnancy test, find out if she really is pregnant, and then she and Foxglove decide what to do. Yeah, and also see a doctor is something she says in there. And she adds, when it comes to sex, well, don't ever believe anything a guy says. Guys think with their dicks.
2: She has reason to say that, having had the experience she had with Ken, I
1: suppose. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Having had first-hand experience of Ken's thoughts. Yes, right. Before she leaves, Hazel asks for the frog mug back. That was the excuse she gave Foxglove for why she came down. So there's continuity with the uh, last Ah, the cute issue. frog Do mug. Do you mean the cute frog mug? I'm sorry, I forgot. The, the
2: copyright cute frog mug.
1: <laughs> so Barbie turns on the TV to try and stay awake, but it's not working. She sees Foxglove and Hazel posing with a doll. And then we see Nuala from Season of Mists over the television. Yeah, she's here to warn Barbie that something bad is on the way. Right, sent by Morpheus, we can assume. Maybe not. She says, I probably shouldn't be here at all. Well, in any case, as Barbie continues to slip into dreams, she dreams that she's seeing her ex-husband Ken being interviewed on a late night show.
2: And Ken is just popping off about how dumb and boring Barbie is and how she paints silly things on her face in a desperate attempt to seem interesting.
1: Barbie, is that true? Are you secretly a really boring person? (laughs)
2: That's not the half of it. She's hanging around with degenerate weirdos and probably cracking up into the bargain.
1: They he, prefer weirdos. Weirdzos, actually.
2: Weirdos, actually if you want to use the correct term. Also, yeah. he has, like, a lot of nerve calling other people degenerate weirdos. <laughs> and calling Barbie boring, if anything, Ken is just way too interesting. In a very specific area of his life.
1: I wonder what he's up to these days.
2: Oh, God. I mean, he's... Nothing wholesome. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, but he was so wholesome in his, like, you know... Outer persona? Right, exactly. So one wonders. And maybe we'll find out. Barbie finally falls fully asleep. She opens the curtains that are suddenly in front of her. Now she's wearing a princess dress and finds herself in the land.
2: Finally back
1: after two years absence. Oh, it's you, Wilkinson says. Well, you took your time, didn't you? And next we get a very late title page. This is page nine before we get a title. And the narration is just kind of taking us around the house, telling us what everyone is doing.
2: Right. So we see
1: Hazel awake reading, trying to read herself to sleep. She is reading Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye.
2: Foxglove is already asleep and snoring gently. Thessaly is brushing her hair, which she always brushes one hundred times exactly. Again, I think they're trying to drive home the fact that she's so vanilla, which we find out later is misdirection to say. (laughs) But on the other hand, maybe it's
1: like a ritualistic thing.
2: That could be the case as well. I didn't think of that. We see Wanda, who is sleeping, and I think at this point, it's a sure thing that that's Wanda's real hair, since Wanda's not going to sleep with a wig on.
1: Right. George, it's worth mentioning, is waiting patiently.
2: For what? We aren't told. That sounds
1: super trustworthy. He doesn't look all that patient to me, actually.
2: He looks kind of like, come on, come on, like, I don't have all night. And then Barbie, Barbie is dreaming.
1: Yes, wonderful game and ask narration here. And Barbie barbie dreams Mm -hmm. so that was midnight by 1am they are all asleep as george tells us yeah and when he knows that they're all asleep he unbuttons his shirt cuts open his chest and exposes his skeleton now that's got to be a first this might be the first time in the series that something we saw on the cover actually came to pass (laughs) that's mean
2: it came to pass in a very literal fashion because as he exposes his rib cage, there's no organs inside. Instead, there's a lot of birds.
1: <laughs> I had called these crows before. I think it's probably safe to say at this point that they are cuckoos.
2: I actually don't know what a cuckoo looks like, so that could be true for all I know.
1: Yeah, I guess I thought they were cuter cuz of the clocks. But yeah, I wrote it's okay, he keeps birds in there. <laughs> <laughs> So he rips open his chest, and five cuckoos fly out, and when they are gone, he collapses as if dead. I don't mean to challenge you, buddy, but that is four. Oh, you're right. They're in an array that makes it look like there should be five of them, but there's not. Whatever, man. (laughs) 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 You you just fucked up some pretty basic math. Open
2: your eyes! (laughs) In fairness, five would be, like, a much more pleasing, much rounded... Well, okay. no, it makes sense that it's now four. I have to check... It actually now makes I sense Now I have to check whether the
1: count is correct. Because I thought there were five neighbors. There's
2: five neighbors, including George, right? Oh, no, wait, well, Desolate. Okay, that's a good point. There should be five, Thessaly, shouldn't there?
1: Barbie, Foxglove, and Hazel. Maybe
2: they only need one for and Foxglove Wanda, and Hazel. That's five. That's a good point. I don't know.
1: Let me check that Does Barbie need one? I you know, no, you know, no, one doesn't go to Barbie, that's and why. there's a reason for that. That's why. There we go. Boom. Yeah, so I thought there were five because there were five neighbors. There are four. My bad. Idiot. I don't think this is a math podcast. <laughs> oh god, I hope it never becomes one. <laughs> <Because what?
0: laughs>
1: Later issues of Hellblazer.
0: <laughs>
1: and... <laughs> He's got birds in there. He's got... That's okay. Nobody panic. <laughs> okay, so much like Sandman number 16, we find ourselves passing in and out of everybody's different dreams in the apartment building. Uh, we have Wanda dreaming that she gets a lot of nice dresses for free, and her school friends are very envious. You will not have to pay for them. Wanda dreams in stiff, complete sentences. She says to her school friends, Because I do
2: not bear a grudge, I will give all of you nice dresses as well.
1: And then the weirdzos show up. Right. Weirdzo Lila Lake is here.
2: And Weirdzo Lila Lake refers to Wanda by her dead name, Alvin. And Wanda says, my name isn't Alvin, it's Wanda. I'm a woman. There we go. Tor.com, there's some more unequivocal evidence.
1: (laughs) Weirdzo number one shows up. This is basically Bizarro Superman. And orders Wanda to immediate surgery. Us must operate immediately to make you imperfect. Doctors. Nurses.
2: They strap Wanda down, and they demand that Wanda have this operation. And Wanda repeatedly says, uh, No, I'm afraid of surgery. I don't want the
1: surgery. Yeah, this kind of sucks. I wasn't too pleased with with the plot going in this direction. But in any case, we cut back to her bedroom and see that the cuckoo is perched on her shoulder and, you know, clearly causing all this bad shit in her dreams. Next, we come to Hazel's dream, which is the creepiest fucking thing ever. (laughs) Oh my god, yeah, that's right. I'll let you start. (laughs) Okay, Hazel is on a train, and it turns out that she won a prize with her train ticket, so she has to go into the cellar of the train to collect it. In this country, all trains have cellars. So she opens this box, and inside is her freakish, dead, stitched-together baby. The baby smells of formaldehyde, not unpleasantly. It is cold and slightly clammy to the touch. The autopsy scar is sewn together with black silk thread. It has been dead exactly 70 years. It is perfectly preserved. Not unpleasantly is actually a favorite game and phrase. uses that one a lot.
2: I guess every writer has their pet phrases.
1: Foxglove, it turns out, has a baby too. They put the babies together in the crib. Hazel's baby comes to life. My baby begins to move. I am unspeakably proud of it. Now it smells of roses. The baby starts eating the other baby and they run away because they know they're next. And this is really gory, this baby devouring this other baby.
2: Yeah, they don't cut away. They don't imply anything. You literally see it just tearing into the throat and the innards of Foxglove's baby. Perfect, which was perfectly human, alive perfectly baby. Perfectly normal, perfectly alive, and now perfectly ripped to shreds.
1: Yeah, this is the other part that I always forget when I think, this is the story that's not super creepy. Yeah, right. this, is, this is some fucked up shit you guys made me read.
2: <laughs> I just wrote, that's something you don't see every day. Thank God, Thank God for, for that. For that.
1: <laughs> Hazel and Foxglove, also with cuckoos on their shoulder as we move on.
2: Now this is interesting. This is another callback that I was not expecting. This
1: is a big fucking deal. Foxglove sleeps without dreaming. She hears someone calling her name, and her name is Donna Cavanaugh, a name she hasn't used in two years. The person calling is Judy. Judy from Sandman issue number six. Judy from 24 Hours, who was killed by Dr. Destiny in the diner. Now, it's worth noting here that that means that... These people are linked to Rose two different ways. Rose Walker. Yeah, that's right. Barbie used to live in a boarding house with her, and Judy used to be her best friend. Judy, who is Donna's ex. Judy is dead and blames Foxglove. And indeed, Judy is just the way that we left her. She's wearing her uh, jean jacket with the buttons and nothing under it, just like we last saw her in 24 Hours.
2: Judy seems bent on getting back together with Foxglove, despite being deceased.
1: So, you with anyone these days? Yes. Yeah, what's her name? Hazel. Is she as pretty as me? Is she? Does she make you feel like I made you feel?
2: No. No, she's not. But she's never hit me. We learn that Judy is not such a nice person.
1: Yeah, that was surprising to me. Judy identifies herself as either a ghost or a dream. She's not sure... And before we cut outside of Foxglove's dream, Judy says she has something in her eye. Is that a reference to... Yeah, in 24 hours, she had put her eyes out with skewers. That's how she died. Mm
0: -hmm. Fuck,
1: man.
2: That one was so grisly. Still my least
1: favorite issue.
2: I didn't care for
1: it either. Thessaly sleeps. She doesn't dream. She sleeps. Which makes this not a dream. When she grabs the cuckoo. Hmm. Nasty little thing, aren't you? smashes it against the wall and then sets it on fire fuck yeah man so i I should say she sets it on fire just by willing it so she doesn't igniting it directly in her her hands yeah maybe she puts some axe body spray
2: on (laughs) it vanilla indeed
1: (laughs) george seems to feel it die yeah, I was a little confused by this panel. I think maybe we need a second panel of George, because it seemed like he collapsed when all the cuckoos were gone from him. So I'm not sure if he's rousing because one of them, one of their spirits has returned, or if he was, like, conscious okay. and then he fell over because it was killed. I disagree, man. I think the art on this page is perfect. Okay, well, Thessaly gets out of bed and looks in a drawer for something. Then she walks up the stairs and knocks on a door. Uh, who is it? Hello?
2: Hello? It's George, isn't it? I mean, we've said hi, but we've never really been introduced. I'm Thessaly from downstairs. Can I come in?
1: And behind her back, she is holding a knife.
2: Thessaly's so cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We cut to the land. Barbie is introduced to Luz, Pranato, and Wilkinson. She has only hazy memories of all this. They tell her that she's heir to the land and it's destined savior. She's supposed to defeat the Black Guard and the Cuckoo. Well, at least Martin Tenbones knows what he's doing. If they ask where Martin is.
2: Barbie says he's dead.
1: I see. Then we are lost. The cuckoo has won.
2: So Pernato says, don't say that, Luz. And then Barbie says, no, she's right. What good am I going to be?
1: Shut up. For the grace of Murphy, she's the princess, isn't she? Well, isn't she? And she's got the porpentine, and the hierogram is still unbroken. Do you think he'd have wanted us to give up now? Well, do you?
2: I, I don't know,
1: Barbie says. And then she clarifies that she has to get to a place called the Brightly Shining Sea. Now, this is the part that I wanted to come back to, because you said that Wilkinson is the cynic of the group, mm-hmm. and I think him giving this rousing speech shows that you're wrong. Okay, well, in the conversation before, I think it was mostly Luz who was talking about how doomed they were, but... I kind of read that as because Luz can feel when people die. Ah, okay. Yeah, I guess maybe Wilkinson's lines are not so much cynical as a little bit selfish. He mostly just complains about being hungry and cold.
2: Just kind of whiny, I guess, more so than cynical.
1: It's being a poor winner more than anything. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they clarify... That the Brightly Shining Sea is across the mountain range and past the Citadel of the Cuckoo. It's a very long way.
2: And Barbie says, I see. Well, then, we'd better get going.
1: I just want to point out that this comic book had 23 pages. That's less than normal? Normal is 24. Is it possible that a page got jogged in the trade? They just thought that was a better breakpoint? That'd be weird.
2: I feel like the last page of issue 32 was pretty essential to the story. It would have been too weird to end it on the previous. Well, I guess you could have. You could end it there. You could have.
1: Although then there would be no hint that George was up to anything. Right. This is
2: a much sicker ending.
1: Okay. That brings us to Sandman number 34, (coughs) Bad Moon Rising, written by Neil Gaiman, with pencils by Colleen Doran, inks by George Pratt and Dick Giordano. And Colors by Daniel Vazo. We should mention that there's kind of a
2: dramatic shift in the art. I guess not dramatic, but there is a noticeable shift in the art style.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely dramatic for how it portrays certain things. And we will come to that in due time. The cover has a cityscape on top and some huddled people, it looks like. I guess it must be several women, because if it's just one, her head is in the wrong place. I thought it was just like a deformed woman with a tiny arm. And it also has a face on the wall with the words Marka Luna. There's a Marka Luna poster on the right-hand side, and on the left-hand side, there is what looks to be a man's face. Okay, so Fox and Hazel, their respective birds, start to fly off before vanishing disintegrating into white dust. The titles tell us that it's New York at 2 a.m., so it's an hour later the same night. This is all happening very fast. A
2: lot happens in one night. let me tell you.
1: Foxglove and Hazel wake up in terror and confirm to each other that they were both having nightmares.
2: They hold each other and sob and say, it was like it was really happening.
1: I want to point out here that Foxglove remembers what her dream was about. When asked, Hazel pauses before saying she doesn't know. Oh, right. Mm.
2: We see some more of them holding each other, trying to comfort each other. They both point out that the other is shaking. And finally, Foxglove turns on the light. Presumably, they're going to sleep with the light on for the rest of the night. And she says, there, nothing's going to hurt us now. See, everything's all right.
1: We apparently cut to some time later as we find them in the living area of the apartment. Hazel's having a smoke. Yeah, and she has a bit of a philosophical point to make. You know the really scary thing about bad dreams? The fact that you think it's really happening? Uh Uh-uh, not that. It's that something's going on in your head and you can't control it. I mean, it's like there's these bad worlds inside you. But it's just you. It's like you're betraying yourself. Again, she sounds like she's got some guilt going on.
2: And there's a knock at the door.
1: This is a little weird because there have previously been buzzers, and indeed... The person at the door says the buzzer's not working.
2: Right. So they answer the door and it's Thessaly who's checking up on everyone.
1: And this is the first place where the art is really different. Because instead of being drawn to look like at all innocent or harmless, I guess, the way Thessaly did before, here she looks very, like, competent and severe.
2: Right. And she also doesn't have her magnificent widow's peak. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Which is
2: the true loss, I would say.
1: That is true.
2: Maybe she did that with the headband somehow. Gave herself an intentional faux widow's peak. Right, yeah. But that was the style for like a hot second in <laughs> know.
1: Thessaly says she's going to check on Barbie and Wanda and asks one of them to go with her. They both decide to go.
2: So Thessaly knocks on Wanda's door and Wanda answers it and Wanda looks dramatically different.
1: yeah. I kind of feel like the art in the previous two issues sort of like let Wanda be a woman with perhaps a particularly prominent jaw. And here it's like the art is going out of its way to draw Wanda as being super masculine and like boyish.
2: Right. Wanda's got uh, some guns, I think it's fair to say. Some very, very prominent biceps, some very... Um, conspicuously lacking hips, and also in a pair of underwear so that you can see a sort of suggestive bulge. So, um, take that as you
1: will, I suppose. Yeah, not the best.
2: I mean, I think I could have shaken it off if that was all it was, but then in light of some things that are said later, it becomes a bit irksome.
1: Yeah. Okay. What's wrong with the art acknowledging the physical reality of the character? Well... I just, I guess I don't feel like it's, it is a reality so much as it's an interpretation of the character. Okay. And I feel like this interpretation is like way more masculine than what we saw in the previous two issues. And that's coming at the same time as some really troubling transphobic stuff in the story. So you feel like the artist is deliberately minimizing Wanda's femininity a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think it would all come down to the intention of the artist, really. So Sort of reading into that one way or the other.
1: Right. Now, Thessaly tells Wanda that her nightmare is over and that Barbie is the one they should really be worried about. And Wanda responds instantly, dashing over to Barbie's door and banging on it and shouting for her. Barbie isn't answering. Wanda has a spare key to Barbie's place and she runs to get it. Yeah, and... At this point, I wondered, why is Thessaly so insistent on wanting to wake Barbie up? Yeah, we're not sure about Thessaly's intentions yet. We get a very menacing Thessaly face in the bottom right of this panel.
2: Very hooded, dark eyes and very serious set of her jaw.
1: So they get inside and immediately they find the porpentine.
2: It is clutched to Barbie's chest, and here we have another. So we mentioned earlier that, I think we mentioned Wanda's hair has changed dramatically. Barbie's hair is now in these fairy tale ringlets, and I wasn't sure if that was intentional or if the artist just really wanted to draw that type of hair. (laughs) I mean, she is sort of in a fairy tale at the moment, in her dream. So I guess you could make an argument that it's intentional, but wow.
1: Yeah, I wonder if the dream is triggering physical changes in her. She is literally holding a magical gem. But yeah, her hair is quite spectacular at She's this She's got
2: point. some Texas, like, Texan beauty pageant hair <laughs> right there is what she has. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, so Thessaly says she needs to be carried upstairs and just sort of brusquely instructs Wanda to do it, saying, you're the biggest of us, which is the beginning, but not the end, of Thessaly being, like, really insensitive towards Wanda. Yeah, Thessaly adds not to touch or remove the porpentine. Right now, I suspect it's all that's keeping her alive. She leaves and they begin talking about her. Is she for real? Hazel asks.
2: Right, Foxglove says, Thessaly? I suppose so. Always thought she was really dull, you know? Like a bimbo, but with brains instead of looks. Probably studying architecture or something.
1: Wanda interjects, art history. What? We were talking at the laundromat a few weeks back. She said she's studying art history.
2: So I guess Thessaly is a college age young woman? Or a graduate student?
1: She at least appears to be one. Foxglove says, Wanda, we were both having bad dreams too. Thessaly seemed to know something about it, and she knew something weird was happening with Barbie. Hazel adds that George is a creep. Which,
2: yeah, he definitely is. And then Hazel decides to be
1: a creep. Oh, yeah! Yeah, so, yeah. as Wanda is picking up Barbie here, Hazel points out that Wanda has, quote, a thingy. Wanda says, didn't anyone ever tell you it's not polite to draw attention to a lady's shortcomings? Hazel, not getting the message, mutters to herself, this is turning into a really weird evening, you know that?
2: You know, I think Wanda handled that pretty gracefully, all things considered. I think yeah. if somebody was, like, putting their face eye level with my groin and commenting on my <laughs> genitalia, I might have been a little bit more brusque. <laughs>
0: Right. what the fuck she's are already, you doing she's
1: already holding barbie so she's got a weapon too She's just gonna <laughs> <whack her. laughs> you're not supposed to whack people with your unconscious friend <laughs> i mean look feed her for kicking yeah hazel's not exactly being cool here but we do know that hazel is really really naive
2: yes i think that could be another result of that
1: so they get to George's apartment, and this is where Hazel points out that the Barbie poster is indeed a picture of the character Barbie from this comic book. Correct. It's not a picture of the doll. It's a photo of Barbie. I mean, it's Barbie. That's creepy. Thessaly walks in with a bowl containing a hammer and nails. Oh, she brought dinner. <laughs> Everybody asks where George is, and she says, in the bathtub.
2: Wanda says... George is taking a bath. Jesus H. Christ on a bicycle, Thessaly.
1: He isn't taking a bath. He's in the bathtub. It seemed the best place to put him. I killed him. He's dead. Pretty unequivocal there. Yeah. No, she's
2: not. <laughs> she's not essing
1: around, as they say. <laughs> she's not leaving her much room for imagination. No. Or misinterpretation. Hazel thinks this must be a joke, but the three of them run to see if George is in the bathtub. He is, and he's dead. So it's all true, but don't call the cops. Yeah, they want to call the cops. Thessaly tells them not to. Or, in fact, she tells them that they're not going to, which is a different thing. Yeah. I'm really sorry. I don't think I'm explaining things very well. Uh, let me try this again. You aren't going anywhere. You aren't calling anyone. None of you can leave this room unless I want you to. You can try it if you like. It's cool, guys. I killed all his birds first, so... So we're all fine. You know,
2: just hang out.
1: That means it's allowed. You can ask the NYPD. They'll
0: <laughs>
1: There's been a murder. Well, are there dead birds, too? Yes. Okay, nothing we can do. Uh,
2: out of our jurisdiction, you're going to have to call the bird police. So Thessaly's presumably cast some sort of enchantment where they are unable to leave and unable to call anyone. Yeah, we got
1: a half page here of Wanda trying to leave and it's just Wanda standing there and then she concludes that she can't leave. Yeah, I took two notes on this page. One was that it reminded me of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, Older and Far Away. Yeah. And the other is that I really hate how Wanda is drawn. Okay. Okay, so Thessaly, who now has a knife in addition to the hammer and nails... Explains that the birds were responsible for the bad dreams. Well I like here that Wanda asks, Are are you gonna kill us too? And Thessaly says
2: Of course not. Why would I want to do that?
1: She's just very matter-of-fact about it, you know? Yeah. I have no reason to do that. No
2: reason, no particular reason why you should be dead, so she's gonna keep you around.
1: She also says that Barbie is tied into whatever weirdness is going on somehow, and she doesn't know how, but she's gonna find out. So, Thessaly heads into the bathroom with the exacto knife. So, Ooh. Thessaly in the bathroom with the exacto knife. Lord! Thessaly cuts George's face off, making sure to include the ears so it can hear questions.
2: And we get running narration of every single bit of this process of her cutting his face off.
1: She does it in a very business like way, except for when it comes to how to get the tongue. Right, so to get the tongue. This is
2: after she has taken out the eyes so that he can see.
1: I love this game men-esque line mm-hmm. here. She pockets the eyes last, almost as an afterthought. Right.
2: So has the eyes. Now to get the tongue, she bites the end of it. She holds it between her teeth and she
1: rips it out. Well, she basically kisses the skinless face here. Right. And, then, and that's what French it is. French kisses.
2: Yeah. And yeah. Then...
1: And then and then rips the tongue out with her teeth. Gross. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. So so then she hauls George's face out and nails it to the wall with the hammer and nails. I, I want to point out, it was just a couple of episodes ago that we were having a conversation about different fictional works in which faces have been cut off. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Add this one to the list. Yeah. There you go. So this seems very apropos. But this is some, oh God, this is some Abe no mm-hmm. same shit where he can, are you guys familiar with that character at all? Mm-mm. Who's a, a Japanese folktale character, but one of the things he could do is he could put a little red ribbon in a skeleton's a skull's mouth and it would be able to talk. Give it, give it a tongue and it could talk. Oh,
2: man. Yeah, I can see the connection there.
1: But how can it hear the questions? It's got holes in the side of the head, I guess. Not good enough. Thessaly's way is That's a little more. up to Thessaly's standards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, when she's nailing the face to the wall, she nails the face to the wall, folks. This charming woman. We get a little bang bang which seemed I dunno out of place Just for so you him. know she's really nailing it in there. It really hits it on the head. Somebody asks is she new age and she says New Age? No. Quite the opposite really.
2: So now having nailed the face to the wall and placed the tongue in the mouth
1: Okay, George, I want a word with you, young man. George, time to come back. We're getting a bunch of hints here that Thessaly is not the age she appears. George was definitely the oldest person in the apartment when she calls him young man.
2: Right. And that young man begins speaking. And it is horrific. He says, Who, who calls me? Who, who dares call me back from the high shore of the silent river?
1: Wanda barfs. Which is understandable. Yeah. I dare. Here do I charge you and command you in all things to speak the truth, holding back nothing. Else I shall summon the hounds of hell to whip your shade through the world until the moon falls and the sun grows cold. I pray you, tell me now and tell me truly, who were you, and why did you attempt to harm me and these others here in this place this night?
2: And George replies, The cuckoo sent me here. It came to me night after night. In my dreams, it showed me the woman, Princess Barbara, She was promised to me.
1: Gross.
2: Gross. Very disgusting. The cuckoo promised me, promised me many things, many wonderful
1: things. I'm a fan of this shot here of Thessaly listening with the just blood pouring down her cheeks. Don't
2: even bother to wipe it off.
1: Yeah, I guess the other residents of the apartment building were all meant to be sacrifices. Well, he goes on to explain that... The brothers, the cuckoos inside him, were supposed to consume the borders, and then the cuckoo would use one of them to destroy the porpentine. George apparently couldn't touch it, or actually, Gwazi-gog is his name. Right. Couldn't touch it because he already belonged to the cuckoo, so they needed to, like, possess and control one of the other borders. At this point, Wanda is pinching herself, trying to wake up. Thessaly asks where she can find the cuckoo. Intent on a little revenge. And George says, in the dream realm in Barbie's dream. All right, Thessaly tells George that will be all, and he asks,
2: do you then dismiss me? And she says, no, not yet. Hang out, dude. (laughs) Hang around for a while.
1: And then she says, well, this is a pretty pickle, I must say. You know, of all the things I don't believe about this evening, I don't believe you said that the most. A pretty pickle? What the hell is that supposed to mean? You're, like, cutting off faces and killing people and, and...
2: And this is when Foxglove finally decides to acknowledge the elephant in the room. And she says, what's been happening tonight? It's witchcraft, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Foxglove apparently used to be into witch stuff a little. Although not, not at the professional level, you might say.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but she's strictly amateur. <laughs> Semi-pro at best.
1: Foxglove asks what the gem, the porpentine, is. Thessaly says that she's not sure. She hasn't seen one in a long time. But she thinks... It's a dreamstone. Remember, the ruby dreamstone was the most powerful of Dream's artifacts of office that he was trying to recover way back in the first story arc. So somebody else can make a dreamstone just by dreaming it? Or he made another dreamstone at some time. Okay, fair enough. Thessaly tells them she's going after the cuckoo. She doesn't take attacks on her person lightly. Wanda says if that's the way to help Barbie, she's going too. Foxglove and Hazel agree a little bit more reluctantly.
2: However, she's going to need their assistance, a very particular kind of assistance.
1: Yeah, she, which she asks for very diplomatically. Right, I'll need some menstrual blood. Foxglove? Foxglove wants to know why her. And she explains, because you're menstruating, no one else here is. Hazel's pregnant, Wanda's a man, and I haven't menstruated for a long time. So, yeah, she's being a big asshole here. Right,
2: right. A lot of things to mention there. So first of all, misgendering. Second of all, outing
1: Hazel as being pregnant. Yeah, both of those in one word balloon. Yeah, it's
2: a pretty stunning record of assholery. <laughs> That's a
1: lot of dickishness to cram
2: into five words. Right. <laughs> Impressive, Fessily. Well done. Well, she's had a lot of years to practice. Apparently she hasn't menstruated in a long time, so God only knows how old she's supposed to
1: be. So yeah, Foxglove is obviously shocked at the suggestion that Hazel is pregnant, and understandably so.
2: Hazel says that she does not want to talk about it now. She says, please, Fox, not now. So they're going to have a long conversation later, presumably.
1: Yeah. Now, Thessaly explains that there are two ways into another's dreams. You can go through the Dream King, or you can go by the Moon's Road. That is a new development as far as what we know about the dream realm and how it works. So we're kind of adding to the cosmology here. Yeah. But she says, the dream king has little time for you women and even less for my kind while the moon is ever ours. It's time to draw down the moon.
2: Is that supposed to be implying that Morpheus is like sexist or something? What does that mean? It that he has little that time way. for you women? Like, or is that just maybe Thessaly's viewpoint? Maybe we're getting that sort of filtered.
1: Well, he is definitely a dick bag. Yeah. He doesn't have an equal opportunity dick bag. Right. I mean, we just read he was a big dick bag to his own son. Right. Well, yeah, he doesn't have a lot of he doesn't have a lot of time for anybody. He's yeah. apathetic toward everybody. Maybe she reads it as sexism, but we know that he's just a piece of
0: shit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's dramatic irony.
1: Do you remember the line now in Song of Orpheus about Or, as Orpheus is traveling, he passes by the Witches of Thessaly, who can question a man's face for answers and draw down the moon to suit their purposes. Oh my god, I had forgotten all about that, but that's exactly what's happening here. Fucking Neil Gaiman. Wow, man, wheels within wheels. Foxglove remembers calling down the moon back when she was into witchcraft. Thessaly hoomphs at Foxglove's magic. Right. Foxglove's such a poser. (laughs) I wrote, she's done this before, but not really. (laughs) Thessaly arranges everybody, Hazel and Foxglove, in a circle with her. She makes Wanda sit a ways off. Yeah, this plot twist is kind of pissing me off.
0: This
2: is kind of a bummer. I guess the implication... Well, should I say it now or should I wait until she says it a little bit more explicitly?
1: I guess we can hold off. Okay, we'll hold off. Now, she mentions that she's calling the three-faced woman. That immediately reminded me of the Hecate. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is a Hecate appearance. When we get the three faces, they all seem pretty much the same, right? I guess maybe that one's the crone and that one's the matron. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't quite fit as well as some of the ones we've seen in the past. Yeah, as well, the Hecate's role in this is a bit confused if they are the same characters that we know. They're not offering the three questions. They're not being deliberately unhelpful. Yeah, and honestly, like... Thessaly continues to be an asshole, and she's an asshole to the moon, too. (laughs)
0: She's an asshole to
2: everybody. (laughs) Talking about equal opportunity. You know, it's possible that Hecate would would like to be deliberately unhelpful, but can't.
1: Right. Right. She does seem to have a lot of power over them. The room fills up with white light as a giant, white, three-faced woman spirit appears. It says that Thessaly should be dead by now, and that they haven't been called down in thousands of revolutions. The moon asks why it should do what Thessaly wants, and she says she doesn't deal. She commands. You will do exactly as I request. Just as I pulled you down from the heavens, you are mine to dispose of, mine to command. Where others ask timorously, Thessalian, your kind commanded, directed, ordered. It galled us, but the others are dust now and less than dust. And one day you in your turn will join them, and then our compact will be over, and you will be ours as they are. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Thessaly demands that the moon send her and Barbie's friends to the dream realm. And we see a representation of Morpheus. The spirit kind of puts forth this image of Morpheus as it asks why it should do this. Thessaly just again says because she orders it. He's looking kind of particularly Final Fantasy-ish in this rendition. For that outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Nice.
2: Yep, I can see it. So the Hecate says, Thessaly has disrupted the order of things enough for one night, and one day there will be a reckoning.
1: We will accede to your plea. We have little alternative, but we can wait. Our night will come. Now, at this point, the dog-hating homeless woman is sitting out in an alley and notices that the moon is gone from the sky. Right, it was out tonight, but now it's just gone. So, maybe it's an eclipse or something. Happens all the time. The passerby that she tries to bring this to the attention to just kind of blows it off.
2: Not terribly interested. He does point out that it's raining cats and dogs, and the homeless woman says, I don't like dogs.
1: Well, specifically, I think he says it's gonna rain cats and dogs. He
2: does say it's gonna rain cats and dogs. I yeah. stand corrected. It hasn't started yet.
1: Right. Still suffused in the white light in the apartment, Thessaly tells Wanda to keep Barbie safe while they're gone, and that either way they'll be back before sunrise. Now, here's maybe the roughest bit. Wanda wants to go, but Thessaly says the moon route isn't open to her. The implication is because she was born male.
2: Right, because of the XY chromosome.
1: Yeah, this is, like, pretty shitty.
2: Yeah, there's really no other way about it. I mean, make no mistake, Neil Gaiman was, like, years ahead of the transgender thing because this was, like, 1989, 1990, whenever it was published. But this shows that at that point there was still a long way to go. (laughs) The moon engages in biological
1: determinism. Apparently so. Well, and it's not just that... The moon is doing it or that thessaly is doing it i just kind of feel like the story here is sort of underlining like a point of like well that's the way of things and mm. you know the world is the way it is wanda we can't humor you oh i see you know see. that's how it felt to me and it really pissed me off
2: yeah it's really really unfortunate that's a big yikes That's a big old yikes
1: So, the light vanishes, and with it, Thessaly, Foxglove, and Hazel, leaving Wanda alone in the apartment with the unconscious Barbie. And outside, the homeless woman notices that the moon is back where it belongs. First you're there, then you're gone, now you're there again. You laughing at me, lady? Moon goes away, moon comes back. That ain't natural. At this point, Wanda has a little conversation with herself about how weird this all is, and how freaked out she is. As well, how weird that Hazel and Foxglove just accepted all this. I mean, they just fell into it. Like, it was all natural as anything. I, on the other hand, squeal and toss my cookies. Oh, I don't want to do that line.
2: <laughs> yeah, so... Again, it's sort of underscoring the fact that Wanda is different from the others because Wanda was biologically XY or is biologically XY. And so Wanda concludes this with, Maybe I'm not the woman I thought I was. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. hey. Yeah, it's one thing when it's Thessaly being a dick to Wanda. It's even worse when it's Wanda saying these things about herself. And
1: like the stories being a dick to Wanda. <laughs>
2: right, right. Like, okay, we get it. We get the point. You don't need to underscore that again.
1: So she starts monologuing to Barbie. Yeah, this is kind of a funny little scene as she's trying to cheer up the unconscious Barbie. Going on a tangent to herself. Right. Brr, the scariest little Miss Goody two-shoes I ever met. I kept expecting her to turn into Margaret Hamilton. Bizarre, yeah. huh? But Jesus, we're the good guys. You and me and Fox Glove and Hazel. And Thessaly, maybe. I had to get Fox to write one of her stories about us. Um, the bimbos of the night. Night of the bimbos. The night bimbos. <laughs> I actually got that reference. Margaret Hamilton was the actress who played the witch in The Wizard of Oz.
2: Oh, nicely oh, nice. Okay. Figured it had to be something like
1: that. And I also wrote in my notes, I wrote, Wanda, you're getting distracted. (laughs) In fairness, she is in dire need of a distraction at this point. While somebody is about to bring her back on topic, as Wanda settles in for a long night, a voice calls out to her from the wall.
2: Excuse me, Miss Miss Wanda. Uh, Can we talk?
1: And that brings us to the end of the first half of A Game of You. I thought it was both spooky and scary. What did you guys think?
2: I still really like it. Uh, it. Some of the choices they made with regard to how other people treat Wanda definitely bother me more now than they did ten years ago. Ten years ago, I'm sure I was oblivious. But, all in all, I still really like that combination of, of fairy tale dreams and absolute gory, disgusting horror.
1: <laughs> yeah, apart from the treatment of Wanda, which we've already talked about i'm finding most of this setup very compelling i'm finding the land a lot more compelling than i did when we first saw it in the doll's house story arc at the time i thought that it was like so overwrought and ridiculous that you know it couldn't maintain itself for more than a page but he's actually kind of turning it into a somewhat decent setting for a for a fantasy story Yeah, we're getting an interesting new perspective on the land since we're seeing it from the view of the creatures that live there now. More than just a flash of this is what Barbie dreams, these creatures live in the land full time and are slave to its fate.
2: Right, it's less of an abstract concept than it was before. Before it was just sort of an ideal, right? The ideal of a dream.
1: Well, and almost like the ideal of a story.
2: Right, right, exactly. More of a prototype than a real fleshed out thing.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's fair. There's a lot going on with the land. There's an expansion of the Sandman mythos, as we learn basically, like, creatures that you meet in your dreams are real. That's always been an implication of the dreaming, but now we see that they have lives and that they can even cross over into your world. As well, there's, like, a writer level that Barbie has sort of a responsibility to the story that she began but didn't finish. Oh, yeah. And there's also kind of Game and engaging a little bit with the concepts of epic fantasy and the, the tropes of epic fantasy. Maybe a little bit of a rebuke. He calls out the, you know, the incredible darkness of these epic fantasy stories as all these characters are just sure that they're doomed and they've got so much stuff pitted against them. Calling out, you know, never-ending doom and gloom for the sake of entertainment and the sort of manufactured nature of that drama.
2: Well said. Well said.
1: I found... The twist that, you know, Thessaly turns out not to be so vanilla after all, I found that was really fun.
2: That's one of my things I remembered really liking from back when I first read it, one of my favorite. I didn't remember, actually, a tremendous amount of the plot points, but I did remember the thing with Thessaly.
1: Yeah, once we see how, like, not harmless she is, she starts to kind of wear on me a little bit. Like, she's such an asshole. (laughs)
2: Right. But at first, though, when she wakes up and she smashes that bird on the wall, it's like, damn. That is
1: comics magic. Yeah. (laughs) Go
2: Thessaly. That rules. But yeah, later it gets a little.
1: (laughs) And as well, it's hidden behind the fact that there were actually like two weird upstairs borders because George turns out to be a a living birdcage with cuckoos that come out of his chest. And then something else is weird because Thessaly is a witch. Yeah, I kind of like how this mirrors what we saw in, in the Doll's House story arc, you know, where we kind of get introduced to every character in the house in that story. And then in this story, once again, we're going through every character in the house and introducing them all and kind of getting into their heads and their personal dramas. Yeah, we kind of get game in in a domestic comedy mode here for a few pages. Some of the most dialogue dense pages that we see. You're making a face. No, I'm
2: making a... I'm making a face because... Okay, sorry. I was thinking about Twizzlers.
1: <laughs> it was a twisted up face.
2: It was because I have sour Twizzlers at home. <laughs> the, other day, the other day, Ryan had to cut a bunch out of our podcast because I got distracted by a picture of Colin Mockery from Whose Line is
1: <laughs> So what do you guys think of Gaiman's domestic comedy mode? I want some Twizzlers. <laughs> God damn it! stand alone against an insidious enemy!
2: I've actually always really liked Gaiman when he does comedy. Uh, Anansi Boys is like a very funny, it's a very funny book. I really like that one. I really like Good Omens, which is a very early one he did that is also very funny. Oh yeah, with
1: Terry Pratchett.
2: Right, exactly. So I've always thought that he does it well, and I've always found it really compelling when people can do like comedy and horror in the same story.
1: And part of his comedy rests on his ability to like capture people's voices. Mm-hmm. And, like, just get into their internal lives really quickly. Which, you know, is really a skill he's showing off here. Yeah, so we get a couple of really charming pages as he sets up the cast of this apartment building. And does lovely work in establishing all of those characters very quickly. As well, the same issue seeks into one of the most emotionally wrenching sequences in the book. As Martin Tenbones is killed in front of Barbie. Ah, uh. Yeah, so effective. Yeah, that's a really fantastic sequence, a really uh, layered sequence. I talked about the meta before, but just on the surface level, it really gets to sort of a core idea about what dreams are. You know, ephemera, but intensely personal ephemera. Yeah, that's true. Being reintroduced to Martin Tenbones really rips Barbie's heart out.
2: Did anybody else just feel really gutted when Martin Ten Bones died because you were thinking of, like, little little characters and little friends that you made up when you were a kid, and then you felt guilty for abandoning them? Or am I the only one who's, like, that much of a baby?
1: <laughs> I think that's how he sells it. Right. I, I think that that's exactly, like, this thing that we can all kind of relate to.
2: Right. Like, as a creator, as their creator, a little bit like what Sean was saying earlier, it's like you have a responsibility to them because you made them, and then you abdicated that responsibility as you got older
1: yeah and there's this interesting kind of point that Gaiman is making like you know he's the author of Sandman but through dreams everybody is kind of the author of their own worlds and stories yeah I mean the idea of dreams and stories as like inexorably linked is a running theme throughout like this whole series I'm reminded of one of my favorite lines from the series when, I don't know if we've seen this yet, when Lucian is in the library offering someone a book. This is the library of books that were never written, and he says, she never wrote it, but she worked on it every day of her life. Yeah, wow. that's cool. I love that. We should talk a little bit about the Sandman. We got two pages of Morpheus and nothing else for three issues. Yeah. This is one of the most sandman light story arcs we're going to get. Yeah, I think that we have seen one issue in the series so far where he doesn't appear at all. hmm but oh, prior to this story arc, because right. you said he's on two pages in three issues, so obviously there's more comics and here. Essentially,
2: working. all he does is just say, "like I don't, I don't give a I guess shit." He did
1: appear as we saw the moon's image of him in in one right. page. Yeah, if you want to count yeah. that,
2: that is true. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, it's interesting in reading new comic books like number one issues. The writers and the artists only have you know twenty two pages to introduce you to a cast of characters. And make you care about them. And sometimes it's almost like Neil Gaiman knows that he's so good at that trick that he's going to do it every issue. <laughs> <laughs> it's the enormous cast of characters in the series. Yeah, and he keeps coming up with new ones and then just kind of like moving on from them before we've seen all the places they can go, which is a little frustrating. You know, like I want to know what's going to happen with Hob Gadling. Yeah. We had previously talked in the Season of Mists episode, we compared... Doll's House to Season of Mists. Doll's House is mostly focused on the perspective of Rose Walker. Season of Mists is mostly Morpheus as the POV character. Right. And I think you had voiced a preference for having a POV character. Did I? <laughs> Did you? Eric? Well, how does this one stack up so far anyway? <laughs> was it? I... opinions expressed in this podcast may or may not be remembered by me. <laughs> <laughs> At a later time. It may
2: or may not be agreed with by you <laughs> at a later
1: right. time. Yeah, I, I reserve the right to contradict myself. But no, I don't miss I don't miss Morpheus that much from this story arc. We've got a lot of compelling characters who we give a shit about. So, you know, we don't really need him.
2: Who we give a shit about and who give a shit about things. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: right. Well, yeah, yeah, we addiction. see a little bit of Morpheus apathy here, which is always something to watch out for in this book. <laughs> I guess that just about wraps it up right? I think so. I don't have anything to add. Well, in our next Sandman episode, we will be covering the second half of A Game of You. But first, join us next week for Hellblazer. That's right. This guy is coming back for uh, Neil Gaiman writing Hellblazer. Oh, that's right. We're doing Neil Gaiman on Hellblazer next week. Well, that's awesome. VertiGuys is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show and I handle social media. Joanna, where can people find you?
2: They can find us at our brand spanking new website that I made with Squarespace and everything. lightsabersprecious.com. If you Google that phrase and you look it up on Facebook or Twitter, I guarantee we are the only thing that'll come up. So drop us a line, give us a listen.
1: Quickly, what is What's Lightsabers Precious?
2: You know what? I probably should have led with that. It is a podcast wherein I try to explain Lord of the Rings to my husband, who knows nothing about it, and he tries to explain Star Wars to me, who knows nothing about it, using Wikipedia articles. (laughs) Which
1: is just a delightful repository of useless knowledge. Well, now, it seems like... When you guys are covering those Jedi Prince books, like, that's not from Wikipedia, right? He's just going off I think he, like, supplemented,
2: but yeah, a lot of times he goes up. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes we get into 80s and 90s children's series of the expanded universe, which is no longer canon because it got so stupid and absurd. People were essentially just like, fuck it. We're erasing all... None of this ever happened. But it's...
1: Never forget.
2: Never forget! <laughs> never forget the lost solo children. So... <laughs> <laughs> and and i use an encyclopedia of arda which is sort of like the lord of the rings equivalent of wikipedia yeah so if you're interested in knowing either more of those or you just like hearing somebody be absolutely astounded by this overly expansive nerd crap that they knew nothing about before <laughs> give it a listen it comes out every single week it's posted typically saturday night or sunday morning
1: all right and eric where can people find your podcast This is my podcast. Where can people find it? Oh, well, you can find our podcast at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. I don't know if you know this. Did you guys know that we have lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode?
2: Oh, my God. I had no idea. Show notes, too? You guys are the hardest working guys in the podcast business.
1: Well I don't want to say anything like
2: busting my ass
1: over we're on Facebook, Facebook.com slash vertiguys. We are on Twitter at vertiguys. And you can find me on Twitter at sean You can reach us on Gmail, vertiguise at gmail.com. We'd love to have your questions or if you just want to chat about these comics. Also, if you happen to listen to us, on the Apple Podcasts app, or really, like, wherever you listen to us. Give us a rating. Give us a positive review. uh, Help spread the word about Vertiguy's. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.
2: Thanks. Bye. When I was in middle school, so I talked to a lot of, like, the quote-unquote, soft-core goth kids, right? And they're always okay. like, you gotta read The Sandman. The Sandman's so good. I was like 13 or whatever, and they're like, we're gonna go for Halloween. It's like all the the endless, and you're gonna be delirium. It's gonna be like great. You just gotta read it. <laughs> First of all, now that I've read it, like, fuck you.
0: <laughs> 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 so- <laughs>